uh, welcome. My name is Natalie Yeadon, and I'm one of the co-owners and managing directors uh, with Impetus Digital. So just in case you're not familiar with our company just yet, um, we offer numerous cutting-edge synchronous and asynchronous virtual collaboration tools. Uh, and we help life science companies with things like virtual advisory boards and investigator meetings, co-author groups. And I'm sure you can probably imagine that this has been a big, uh, a big deal since COVID-19. So um, lots and lots of uses, including internal meetings. At Impetus, we actually believe that everything starts with a conversation. And so when we try to help our clients with their online collaborations through our platform, we believe that using uh, things like the Impetus Insight platform is a great place to start these kinds of discussions. But not only to start them, but to continue with them. And this is the key thing about trustability, credibility, and building these lasting generation of authentic partnerships and idea creation is to contain and build on those conversations. So we feel that those are what really helps to build success in having these big, hairy, audacious conversations or what we really believe are the start to having some positive disruption in healthcare. So with all that said, um, the, the whole idea behind this fireside chat webinar series is we want to start some of these conversations, you know, with people like Craig and with others um, to have some big, hairy, audacious goal planning, thinking, idea generation, and to discuss some of these opportunities to see how we can challenge the healthcare industry to face new ideas and new technologies. So I have actually, I was just saying earlier, I've watched a lot of what Craig has said. I wish he could write a book one day or even do an audiobook because he's got a great radio voice. You'll hear that shortly. Um, but Craig is actually a big thinker and he is a recognized leader um, and at the forefront of inner innovation in the clinical research area and also in um, medical development. He has been and is an advisor to technology and biopharmaceutical companies. He leads universities and the venture community bringing vision and he helps to drive action at the intersection of research, digital solutions, as well as patient engagement and actually Craig is gonna be able to share an interesting story about his life journey as well. He was actually the head of clinical innovation and venture partners at Pfizer. So he does have a life science background and is one of the, and on the founding operations committee for Transcelerate Biopharma and on the founding man management teams for two successful startup ventures. One was Perceptive Informatics and at Nexus Therapeutics. So he's got tons and tons of other backgrounds and I'm gonna get, I'm gonna kind of get us right through that right now and have Craig introduce himself. Um, Greg, uh, Craig, welcome, thank you so much for joining us today. Natalie, it's a pleasure to be here with you and that, uh, that introduction's very flattering. It would make my grandmother blush. <laughs> That's awesome. So um, before we get to the clinical innovation partners, which I think has so much juicy bits to it and will lead to a very provocative discussion, you spent 12 years working at Pfizer as the head of clinical innovation. Why don't you tell us a little bit about what got you there um, and what were some of the major clinical innovations and initiatives that brings you to your current space? Absolutely. I had a great journey at Pfizer. I was able to put together a team that focused on a gap, which was how can we bring disruptive new approaches into medicine development and clinical trials? We started doing this there 10, 12 years ago. 
And so at that time, the prevailing thought was operational excellence is the highest bar we can achieve. The farthest that we can push an organization would be to simply tune and optimize every process that we have. And we took a fresh approach of re-looking at why we even have some of these steps and processes in the first place by placing a strong focus just on the goals of what we were trying to, to achieve around the generation of evidence for different stakeholders around the efficacy and safety of our new medicines. And so we put together a team that focused in four areas around our use of digital in development, around our inclusion and engagement with patients in medicine development, around spaces we can collaborate with our peers across the industry, and then our ability to embed clinical research as a care option and how we can partner together with large health systems in the US and embed research participation. And so with those four main areas of focus, we, uh, we had a great journey together at Pfizer, ultimately leading to most all of those just being embedded in the day-to-day -day of how the uh, development organization is operating today. And so when you were there, and you again, you could have been considered a real visionary at the time, because that was actually 10 or 12 years ago. What were some of the things that you found were kind of stifling to some of your more innovative initiatives at the time? You know, I, I think that today, in, as well as, you know, even 10 years ago, there's, there's certainly a, a, a counterculture among um, typically some of the more uh, legacy uh, colleagues inside of any organization. It is by no means unique to Pfizer. I think you see this in universities, in pharma companies, large and small, and the regulatory agencies that, you know, you'll find that there's a distribution. And if you start to think about that distribution of, of uh, receptivity among the colleagues, there's always some tale that wants nothing to do with whatever innovative new approach you're bringing. It simply is moving their cheese and making the, bring the perception that work will be harder. There's a middle group that are receptive, but not eager. They'll move if that's the way the, the, the ship is moving. And then there's that, that leading tail, those uh, early adopters, which can create such an awesome army. And so uh, for me, it was about finding that leading tail and just sort of letting that lagging tail um, a trit and just expecting that as the organization matures and turns over, folks at that other tail will simply not be satisfied staying around because the organization will have advanced. Absolutely. And so tell us a little bit about your personal story and where that personal story drove you. And was that prior to Pfizer or was that after Pfizer? So um, in terms of my personal story, so in parallel with my, my career that you had mentioned and having the opportunity to work in, in technology and in services and with pharma companies along the way, both small venture-backed biotech as well as large, was this personal experience uh, that kind of grew one day when I was uh, at the venture-backed biotech company and we decided to do the, the Chase Corporate Challenge and go for a run and I could barely cross the finish line. And at that time, I had a young child at home, actually my, my second child. And so I kind of, you know, chalked up a little bit of lack of fitness to being a busy uh, parent along with having a busy career. Um, but this wasn't normal. I was just completely out of breath. 
And so I, I started to look at different testing and engage with different providers. And I ultimately came away with a diagnosis, uh, a rare pulmonary condition called pulmonary sarcoidosis, which has continued to take away a lot of pulmonary function for me, but also exposed me to this world of e-patients, of patients that are actively engaging with their data and that are using that data in remarkable ways to improve and manage their own health, but also with an incredible willingness to share. It was actually a, a coffee conversation with a, a dear friend, Dave DeBroncard, who's been a leader in that movement when he diagnosed me as an e-patient and helped enlighten me to this entire community that had been thinking the same way that I had, but had found one another. And he helped bring me into that universe. And a lot of that thinking I brought with me into Pfizer, into the priorities that our organization was pursuing in terms of how very early on we were including the patients in the design of our work and really leaning in on this future of data-enabled patients and the disruption that will come as patients have access to their health data and that willingness to share. Because at the end of the day, what researchers are voracious for is data. And the mm -hmm. best way to get it is through the patients themselves. Absolutely. And I've seen that in your work. And I think you did a brilliant job that the people who have the most amount of their own stuff is, is, is the individual patient themselves. So very well put. So what was the driver that got you to consider to go out and do your own thing? I mean, let's be really frank. A lot of times when you're in the pharmaceutical industry, especially back in the day, um, things are always rosy and wonderful and you're well taken care of. What made you decide to go out, take a risk and start the work in Clinical Innovation Partners? I think I, uh, I got afraid one day. I started to feel very comfortable. I started to feel like I was, um, like I was becoming the man, you know, the, the guy that, you know, the guy that change agents ultimately have to try and navigate around because I've been there for, for a while. And I think there's a certain freshness that organizations need and deserve in terms of those who are trying to lead and, and explain what the future could be for them. Uh, but I'd been there for so long and had become kind of an embodiment of, of what innovation could be in this space that uh, we were kind of losing, I think, some of that, that freshness. But I think it was also the appreciation for me that my role was going to change at Pfizer. So many of the areas that I had pioneered and my team had really championed and brought to life were now becoming the norm. They were becoming mainstream in a way we, we kind of grew into our own obsolescence. And that's a good thing because the business lines in our organization really needed to now own these areas which meant that a guy like me could become a strategist for others. But for those that um, on this call that have worked in a large organization know, it can be a little frustrating to be a strategist within an organization without the ownership of those areas. And quite honestly, I felt that if I was simply going to be providing strategy, I could do that just as well from the outside, be able to do that with many more stakeholders and still be able to work with my friends back at Pfizer around some of their areas of focus. So did you find that there was an increased level of freedoms, um, less cloistered around certain um, requirements and compliance regulations? So what was some of the key benefits that arose for you when you went out on your own? I will say that I was, um, I was given a lot of freedom uh, when I was at Pfizer. There were very few, for those that know me for the years that I was there, 
there were very few organizational constraints that were forced upon me. And I was really given and fortunate to have the, the soapbox of Pfizer and to be able to use it to do a lot of great things, both for that organization, for the patients we were engaging, and for the ecosystem. So I can honestly say, while I do feel a little unchained right now, that the chains weren't that tight and binding when I was at Pfizer. But I do enjoy having the, the freedom to move and the, the ability to engage with so many different audiences today. Um, right now, while we're locked up at home, there are a lot of different uh, opportunities that have surfaced to be able to do podcasts and webinars and engage different people. And each one is such an amazing opportunity to speak with and learn from different audiences, whether they're audiences of patients, drug developers, other types of life sciences, professionals, academics. Um, and so for me right now, the ability to move across so many different key stakeholders in this ecosystem has been fabulous. So what exactly is Clinical Innovation Partners doing? So if a pharmaceutical company finds that this discussion is intriguing and they think that you're a great thinker, what is it that you can do for them? And what is it, is it strategy? Is there something actually uh, cl uh, clinical that you do? What exactly is your organization doing? We're operating as a retained advisory for a number of different types of organizations. And so with uh, large pharma, as well as with uh, biotechnology companies, we're working directly with those organizations around their organizational structure for innovation in their uh, organization. We're working at a more tactical level to help with prioritizing different initiatives that they may be pursuing. And we're working as well around some of the roadblocks that many are facing when they're trying to bring areas like decentralized trials to life. The roadblocks are known and sometimes an objective set of eyes and a third party that operates neutrally in this space is able to help them to anticipate some of those roadblocks and navigate around them. But at the same time, we're working with technology and startups that are looking to bring those new and innovative tools and solutions to impact clinical trials and drug development. And so with those organizations, we are working on their product and on their go-to-market to make sure that if people are investing their time and personal energy into a new solution, that it's really going to be impactful and be able to reach the, the clinical trial community and make a demonstrable impact. Because we're operating at that intersection with both pharma as well as with tech and, and startups, we're also spending a lot of time with the investment community, helping to understand opportunities in this space and where the puck is going. Very interesting and uh, really love some of the discussions that I've heard you speak about around the decentralized trials. Now, curious, now that we're sort of living in this post-COVID world, um, all exploring collectively what this new normal is going to look like, how have you seen the rush towards the decentralization of trials um, since this, you know, in the last couple of months? Has there been an increased interest um, if not, uh, do, you, do you predict that there will be? And maybe you can speak a little bit about, about what you see as being decentralized clinical trials. Absolutely. Lots of great questions in that question, Natalie. Um, so the idea of decentralized trials isn't new. We um, ran the first uh, fully decentralized clinical trial at Pfizer, and I had the opportunity to architect and work with the team in leading that. Uh, 11, 12 years ago. 
And in that opportunity, we, uh, we took a medicine that was um, for a pro with a protocol under an IND with the FDA, an investigational new drug application with the FDA. And we, uh, we ran a trial that was running entirely out of the home for the first time. But even at that time, 12 years ago, there was prior art that we were able to pick up on. That same model had been used with different types of uh, nutritional supplements or incrementally in some of the studies that Lily had run. And so uh, this concept of shifting location of the home isn't new. It was in many ways an opportunity that was right at our right at our feet. And when this pandemic struck, and while some organizations had to run back to the labs and try to research and try to create discoveries and breakthroughs for us, for the clinical trial community, these tools and opportunities were right there and just needed to be picked up and leveraged. They're being used today by companies and, and the research community at large for trial continuity. When this pandemic struck and doors got shut down and people uh, needed to stay at home, in particular those with chronic conditions who are often the patients that are in our trials, the, the impact to clinical trials was one, new study starts ground to a halt. Two, that recruitment had to stop because we couldn't bring in new patients. And three, all eyes were on continuity. How do we ensure that those patients who are on a new medicine in a clinical trial could still access that new medicine? And so in that spirit of continuity, people started to scramble. How do I keep drug supply going so that patients can get this medicine in their home, even if it's an infused therapy, even if it's a therapy that requires a cold chain for delivery? Two, how do I make sure that I can monitor these patients appropriately for their safety? This is a clinical trial for a new medicine after all. And three, the reason we were doing this trial in, this first, in the first place was to gather evidence of efficacy and safety endpoints. How do I still capture that type of data in the home in, in place of the patient coming into a clinic, which is where we're used to going to get our data? And so there was a strong emphasis on how do I keep my trials going? But I'll say, Natalie, that most organizations, I believe, were thinking of this as a short-term problem. Can we get through three months of avoiding missed doses and avoiding missed data? And now where we are today, I think, is the realization that this is not a three-month exercise, that for patients with chronic conditions, they will be avoiding clinical locations until there's a vaccine. And so this adoption that's happened, which to date has been done in an incremental way, protocol deviations, SOP waivers, all of which mean we're going to go back to our old ways of doing business. Now I believe organizations are starting to appreciate that we have to incorporate this in a sustaining way, or we're not going to be able to reopen studies for enrollment. We're not going to be able to get those new trials up and running. Absolutely. So, so many brilliant things there. And I just want to linger on some of these pearls um, at one at a time, uh, if I may. The first one really that you spoke about was about supply chain. So if we are in fact going to look at this as something that may stick around for a while, I think everybody is, is demarking this as until we get a vaccine. But I think that we can actually say that we're habit forming creatures. Um, we're also creatures of, of efficiency and what feels the best. So you're oftentimes touting the idea of location flexibility in clinical trials as something that could be very useful. But when we talk about 
drug supply chain. What are some of the technologies and the solutions that have come to mind that you've been coaching and counseling uh, some of the organizations that you're working with? So you're absolutely right in terms of my, um, my, my evangelism for the spirit of location flexibility. The idea that our desired end state needs to be one where the patients have choice. Just like you said, as far as we have memory and we have you know, where consumers want to land, this pendulum has swung hard towards us staying at home and the doors will reopen, but the pendulum is not going to swing all the way back to where it was. It will land in a new normal. And for many of us as consumers, that new normal is a world where we have choice and the world is hybrid, where we've been exposed to the joys of Instacart and home delivery. And that doesn't mean we never wanna go back in a supermarket. It just means we wanna be able to choose when we go back in a supermarket and when we stay at home. And that spirit of choice is crossing over in our business lives. It's crossing over in how we'll seek healthcare from our providers, whether telemedicine or office visit. And it will cross over into how our research participants want to engage in a clinical trial. That wherever possible, we need to be able to give them choice. From a supply chain perspective and from a study operations perspective, that's frightening. It means that systems that to date that have been tightly controlled to flow one direction in a very tightly monitored ecosystem have to now be able to accommodate patient-controlled levers and forks and how that train track is going to shift from one route to another. We know we can do this. We know lots of organizations do this. We obviously know Amazon does this very well, but we also know that pharmacies are able to do this and how we're able to ship medicines to patients in different environments. And so there are known pathways that we can follow. The challenge for most organizations is this is going to be hard. It is going to cost money. It's going to take time. But when we use language like being patient-centric and putting patients at the center, this is how we embody it, right? Because being patient-centric isn't free. Otherwise, it's just rhetoric. The fact is there's burden in clinical trials, and right now the burden falls on patients. And if we truly believe we're patient-centric, we have to be willing to invest in things that shift some of that burden back over to the sponsor and back over to study operations and back onto our supply chain. We know we can manage it. The technology is clearly available. We have to be willing to accommodate that additional burden and make life easier for our patients. Yeah, absolutely. And I absolutely 100% agree with that. Um, the technologies are there. It's like almost like new neural network programming in our minds. We just have to reset the train tracks and the way we do things. The other key piece that you spoke about um, in that uh, little, in, in some of the solutions you were describing, or the new norm of how we're going to be doing clinical studies, was really talking about the methodology at which we are pulling the data. And so we're talking in some ways the traditionalist ways of using clinical research organizations or going to the IDNs or going in to see an investigator or somebody who's capturing the data through a verbal discussion or taking your, you know, various other kind of body metrics. Now that we're not going to be in the same density or same physical space, we have this opportunity to be using other technologies sensors, 
over time, we're not saying these things, we can leapfrog suddenly into the next century, but you know, tricorders and all kinds of other sort of measurement tools, some eventually gonna be embedded in our clothing or you know, embedded in, in various other, you know, under our skin or what have you. But in, in the short term, have you explored or what do you counsel or coach some of the organizations you work with on the types of ways that information can, can be solicited as a real world data, as real evidence supported and provided directly by patients themselves without necessarily having those middlemen or those brokers? Um, what, what have you been discussing? We know today that the data flow that we have in our studies is highly inefficient. We know today that the way data flows, the tradition, the norm, is that patients go to a site and they're uh, engaged with and have a conversation with a study coordinator and investigator who records that into a case report form, electronic, albeit not necessarily on paper like it was 30 years ago, but still recording it on a case report form that then triggers a monitor from a CRO, a contract research organization, to fly out and check the data veracity, as well as have other engagements with the site around good quality and other practices. But we know that in today's world, that's not the model that makes sense. I'll speak with students out of grad school who will ask me, why do we do it this way? I think every, everyone, whether senior or junior or, or new to this field, can see there has to be a better way. When we start with that future mindset, most roads will lead us to appreciate that we have an engaged patient in a clinical trial, one who's giving permission, they're giving consent, they're stepping forward, and we can work with that patient to capture data in remarkably better ways. That might mean through different types of sensors or wearables that are capturing data with the patient from their body, from their experiences. It might be how we can use conversational AI and chat to be able to replace legacy surveys with far more engaged interactive experiences rather than asking everybody the same structured 30 questions where we can simply have a device ask me, how am I today? And listen to my words and listen to um, my inflection to be able to truly understand how I am today. But it also means that we'll be able to work with patients to capture high quality data from their electronic health records as never before. You can go to a data aggregator, you can go to lots of other third parties and probably buy data about me and you and everyone on this call. But if you wanna get the deepest data about me from across all of the many sources that have my data, the best place to go to get it is to come to me, the patient. And the great thing about our clinical trials is we have access to that patient. We're engaging with them and we have consent with them. And so we can do that together in a fully permissioned way. Now, in terms of the practical and the pragmatic, how do we get from where we are today to where we're going is to start to look at the data elements in our new studies and where can we start to pull out and electronically source that data or work with patients in our studies to capture that data from them. In some cases, we may say out of a an abundance of caution that that addition, that data will be in addition to our old way of doing things. And it's fair to say for initial studies, as we build confidence and want to validate these data flows, we don't want to put our studies at risk. But 
that has to be with a deliberate view of being an incremental step to build that confidence before we cut the cords, before we burn the boats and fully commit to this new way. Because when we do, we'll have more resources available. We'll be able to spare burden to different stakeholders. And we as research sponsors will have more resources available to accelerate other drug development programs that we had to deprioritize simply because we didn't have enough cash on hand. Mm -hmm. We can now move more along. Yeah. And the third component, I think, to this all outside of the, the actual, you know, retrieval of the data, which I think is a whole other discussion and an exciting world in the digital space, is the whole discussion around what metrics we're using to measure the success of a drug's efficacy or safety. And, you know, all of the controversy about what that is in a new, very hyper- personalized world that we live in. And so I guess ultimately the question comes down to is how are we evaluating or could we be evaluating in the future endpoints based on very particular uh, specific patient needs? Could you see the day of an N equals one study? Um, and what does that look like? I think that the FDA has been, um, has shown incredible leadership on this topic through patient-focused drug development initiatives has really championed the path for industry to make sure that we are stopping and engaging and listening to patients around the endpoints that matter most to them. And even where the agency themselves are not leading these patient-focused drug development workshops, they've now charted a path for research sponsors to do this on their own and work together with patient organizations and other stakeholders to make sure this is a part of the process of how we're considering what endpoints to use in our studies. For too long, we have relied on the endpoint that was used last time. That spirit of using the endpoint that was used last time makes a lot of sense. For one thing, as the person writing the protocol, if that other person who wrote the last protocol still has a job, then that endpoint maybe was a good thing, right? They didn't get fired. They didn't do something, you know, cataclysmic. But I think there are also very practical reasons why organizations like to use the endpoint from last time. They want their measurements to be comparable in the eyes of regulators, payers, or other stakeholders that want to understand this new medicine versus others and the endpoint uh, being comparable matters. That being said, if we continue to rely on using the endpoint that was used last time, we are in an endless cycle of lack of progress. Because when we, when we really look at it, we know these endpoints are not that good. If these endpoints were really good, it wouldn't matter where they're being captured. We could capture an endpoint in the home with the same level of confidence as capturing it in the clinic. Instead, we know these endpoints are so fragile. They're so fragile that we have to hyper-train and be uber-vigilant with the investigators who are asking questions of the patient in exactly the right way, in exactly the same way from visit to visit. A six-minute walk test is a great example of that. The idea of having a patient walk for six minutes would seem to make sense in heart failure studies at least, but the idea that this endpoint is so fragile that we need patients to come in and measure exactly a 20-meter track and watch them walk on this track time and time again because otherwise it's not going to be captured correctly and enable consistency. 
And we see this with our endpoints time after time. And so we really need people to take a fresh look at their endpoints. And the idea of, of having a safety net so that in the world of a pandemic today, in the world of unpredictability over will our patients need to stay at home next year, now more than ever, we need to double down on relooking at these endpoints. That's what I believe is going to be an important outcome of the world that we're living in today is this hyper appreciation that we need to rethink these endpoints and invest in very often what will become new digital endpoints. And the good thing here is when you make that investment, we're validating it against the old. We're validating against the endpoint we used last time. And so we can make inferences and build confidence with different stakeholders. And then I love that idea. And it really brings, it ties in this whole idea around the how we collect data and then the what we are collecting. Um, I interviewed somebody recently um, uh, from a company called NQ Medical, and the whole idea here is to start collecting data from people passively. One of the greatest and most efficient way to do it is when people don't even know they're doing it. So in their case, they were actually detecting neurodegenerative diseases from the way they were tapping on their computer. You were suggesting the idea of chatbots and sort of voice to text and understanding people's intonations. We may eventually even see this with things like, um, you know, uh, facial recognition or software and looking at emotions and, you know, what is that emitting about you? So just being able to watch TV, we can diagnose diseases. So this is going to be the new world around just being able to allow this to happen and to collect real world data in a very passive, un unobstructed way. But it does lead to the question around ethics and around privacy and around who owns what and um you know and i think that you've spoken a lot about this about instead of being protocol centric or wanting to be patient centric and this this is a whole discussion around do i own this data do i not and how are people collecting this information and, and what does this ecosystem look like this is an exciting world and this is a scary world right now and the idea of passive data collection is fabulous, right? Um, I've watched uh, Dina Katabi from MIT present her work with Emerald, which is a, uh, a way to passively capture data through walls with wireless signals in the home to be able to monitor heart rate and gait in patients. And even at CES back in January, there was an announcement that Linksys is bringing that technology into consumer routers in the home, which is just remarkable. But... The idea that this granularity of data about me is floating around potentially outside of my control is frightening. And the idea that um, it doesn't always flow through my hands with my ability to dictate with whom it is shared is frightening. I think that this spirit of data transparency and control is also embodied in how we're seeing real world data, EMR data, being used very, in a very accessible way by the research community and other stakeholders. And, and it's not a bad thing, right, that researchers are increasingly relying on this real-world data. The problem to me, the part that makes this unsustainable, is that that data includes me and you, Natalie, and everyone who's listening to this show. And none of us have given our explicit permission for our data to be used in that way.
In many ways in this country, maybe you gave your permission when you signed that little electronic box to pick up your prescription. Try to not sign in that box and you'll be denied your prescription. So technically there is a choice. You could have chosen not to sign the agreement and you wouldn't get the prescription for you or your children. Hardly a very uh, fair opportunity for an informed decision to be made. I think a lot of this has to start with transparency. We need to make sure that when we're using data, we're being fully transparent about how we're using people's data, why, and what good is coming from it. We should be proud as researchers that we're making good use of people's data and can share with them and be in a very uh, proud to share that. If there are use cases that we're pursuing that we would not want to have published on a website or on the front page of the New York Times, we shouldn't really be thinking about why we're using people's data in that way. We should either be so proud of using it that we can be transparent and make sure people are aware of how their data is being used, or we should be stopping that use case right away. And how that would work to me will probably mean going back to the health systems, the places where most of your data was being captured and being accessed by third parties, such as data intermediaries and others. There's nothing illegal about what's happening in that environment. It just needs sunlight and transparency so that we as consumers and patients can have trust in this environment. If we don't take these measures, my fear is this spigot of data that we've been relying on is going to get turned off. The patients and consumers are going to grow fearful, skeptical, cautious, and lose trust and confidence in this environment. This to me is the digital Henrietta Lacks moment, right? The research community that used HeLa cells for years did this with good intentions, believing they were doing the right thing. They just did not respect the source. We're kind of falling down that same slope right now. Absolutely, very, very interesting. And it does bring us to the question of, um, I, you know, it, this is a whole other discussion around pr privacy and ownership versus sharing. And what does it mean to be a digital citizen with a full understanding, comprehension, and literacy around the digital charters that are popping up everywhere? Um, and I like to sort of maybe eventually look at people as digital, um, di digital citizens as opposed to patients and, uh, and care partners instead of caregivers. It's just you changing the language. But I think the, the other important piece here is when we start exploring, especially post-COVID with automation and roboticization and people potentially exploring this idea of UBI, universal basic income, and people getting displaced by machines, it does ask the question about how do we make a living in the future? And one of the potential ways, since you've actually coined it very well, is that data is the new oil or is the new gold is can we in fact connect data, health data, other sorts of data that we own with the blockchain where everything now becomes partly owned by us. So anybody who may tap into our health data or any of our data for that matter, um, be it a researcher or a clinician or a ph pharmaceutical company, that we get these little cryptocurrencies or these little nuggets of, of, of value back to us. So this could potentially be an opportunity for the new UBI by just living life passively and generating this data that's getting collected by people 
that you will get paid for that. And so, um, you know, democratizing, if you will, or demonetizing that flow of money just to a few people and bringing it to the individuals. Do you have any thoughts on exploring that as a, a futuristic possibility? Natalie, there, there are definitely a few different schools of thought on this one. On the one hand, if my data is being bought and sold every day, and it is, and all of ours are, whether that is our purchasing data, our social clicks, our health data the moment we walked out of that last physician encounter, if our data is being bought and sold every day, then clearly there's a value to it. There's a market for it, and there should be some value that comes back to me as the source. On the other hand, there are schools of thought that say that data should be open and liquid, accessible to all. There are still others that say, yes, your data contributed to that data pool, that data resource, but it was like unrefined oil. And it took a refinery process that brought that data together, normalized it, aggregated it, and de-identified it, and that step added substantially more value that was downstream of you and me and we had nothing to do with it and so shouldn't believe that that <clears throat> just because our oil was a part of that that we therefore uh, get a dividend in everything that comes out of it what, whatever analogy you believe in i believe this all will start with transparency and making sure that I can see how my data is used. The next step in that journey will have to become more permissions, right? Even if you believe your refinery added incredible value, who gave you permission to put my oil into your refinery in the first place? The next very natural step to that is to be able to participate in the value. And while I, I agree that you can't simply take what a data broker is charging to Pfizer to access EMR data and say that data contains a million lives, you're one of it, take the dollar amount divided by a million and that's my check. I get it. There was a, a refinery process that happened in the middle. But even in the oil analogy, money goes back to the people in the fields, right? The place from which that oil was first sourced before it reached the refinery still recovers value from that. And so I do believe that there will be a time that a UBI enabled from how my data is used will make incredible sense and just be incredibly obvious to all of us. It's not going to be a gold mine, right? This is a basic income that we can all access simply by respecting the fields from which the oil is being sourced. But when you take it in aggregate across all of the places that your data is being used, I believe that's going to become remarkable. To me, the place where blockchain is going to be an important part of being able to keep the ledger of all these transactions is the fact that my data is worth a different amount from your data and everybody else on this call. If, um, if me or people in my family are affected by a certain rare condition, my data is worth more because the research community will hunger for that data more than others. And so there, there probably will not just be a norm that everybody gets $5 a month just by accepting to allow their data to flow, nor should there be if we believe in a free market. Rather, by having a, a decentralized ledger that can keep track of who is making the request, how are the dollars flowing, I think that's going to make sure that 
for those that choose to share their data, whose data has greater value, that they'll be able to recover more value from that. I love the idea and I uh, also exploring the refinery analogy and, and as we relate that to things like currently the data lakes that we're creating and maybe eventually the data oceans. And so as we sort of explore this blockchain concept and the idea of the decentralized autonomous organizations, um, do you ever see the, the, the day where pharma will redefine their business model? Where currently, as we know, we have all these individual companies existing separately. Each of them has their own marketing and scientific affairs and research and their own drugs and their own flow channels and all sorts of other things. And everybody's doing this independently. And suddenly you see this opportunity with a data ocean um, where there's questions and answers and all kinds of things flowing in this big giant space. Do you see that eventually there will be questions as opposed to companies and this opportunity to confluence together um, around question sets, solve them together in whatever entity that is, is it a DAO or something else? And then it disbands and some other people get together around another question. That's kind of like a big concept, but I was just curious as to what you think pharma may have to redefine. Right now it's around the pill. We oftentimes explore this idea of beyond the pill, but is there something even more? What is, if you will, the definition of a pharma company in the future? You know, there is a lot of talk about going beyond the pill, and there has been for years, but I think that the problem with going beyond the pill is that pharma is addicted to drugs, um, drug, <laughs> the, right? The, the pill has a revenue model attached to it that the least successful medicine makes more than the most successful digital solution in, by and large, right? There may be a few outliers to that, but the idea that this model should and will persist in its current way, I think there are a lot of good reasons to challenge that. For one, Many pharma companies today rely on different uh, contract opportunities, right? Whether it's how to contract research at the bench by working with different vendors and service providers, how to contract clinical trials to be done, how to contract a sales force. And so in many ways, you could start to see how a pharma company, rather than employing armies of talented people, employ a very small number of people a lot of smart data um, use and access to a lot of capital. And this really becomes an investing um, space rather than a space where you're employing armies of tens of thousands or a hundred thousand employees. I think that pharma as well, especially in this clinical research space is operating in what's really the ultimate shared economy. We don't own the patient. We don't employ the investigators. We don't even own the real data sources, as you mentioned, that we're often relying on. We're kind of creating our own instances of data that we say we own, but it's all drawn off of other people's data in the first place. There may be algorithms we're employing to try to manipulate or do something interesting with that data, sure, but it certainly points to futures where um, we're just leveraging a shared economy in better and smarter ways. Today, that shared economy for us is like Uber, right? We, 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 we call and we get data. But I think tomorrow that shared economy may look more like Uber pool. And how do we sort of indicate that we're trying to go somewhere and an algorithm can see what other organizations, pharma companies or otherwise, are also trying to get that same destination and we can ride that car together. 
and remove risk and remove a lot of cost along the way. I also think though that there are really exciting potential futures where a pharma company may start to look much more like a patient organization or a patient organization starts to look more like a pharma company. <laughs> but this convergence between the two to me makes a lot of sense because when we look at a lot of the things that makes the pharma company the central stakeholder in a lot of these research activities, it's because they're the ones funding the research and funding the clinical trial and running the studies where all the data is being collected. And we know that more and more today, all of those areas are being democratized and that organized groups of patients can crowdfund research. Organized groups of patients can crowdfund clinical trials. Organized groups of patients can do DIY and biohacking. Organized groups of patients can share data and answer research questions on their own. And as more and more of those spaces get democratized, are there potential futures where organized groups of patients themselves are the next pharma company? I love it. And I, I've heard you speak about that before and I just absolutely get, get my head around that. And I love it. People like Peter Diamandis, who again is a, a very, uh, you know, exponential thinker was discussing the idea of, you know, organizations of patients can also create their own insurance companies, their own health insurance companies with access to metrics and, you know, cloistering around other people with similar health measures. You create your own insurance group and you create your own rates based on the level of risk of those groups. So it's a very enticing and interesting, yet very scary for legacy companies. And one of the reasons for that is with legacy comes fear. And people are afraid of change, especially when you've created infrastructure around all of these things on compliance, regulations. Some people actually may say sometimes that's just excuse generation for the fear of change. But in some ways, it can be a real thing. And so I think gestating and incubating amidst all of these old, big, huge tree trunks are the saplings of completely new ideas, digital therapeutics, and brand new innovative business models that are, are you know, ready to, to blossom. I think a final note here before we close up, because honestly, I could probably talk to you all day of a million questions, and you're such a visionary thinking thinker. I absolutely love it. But one of the things that really comes to mind here really is about access. Some of the things that we're talking about today are very lofty. A lot of it requires uh, access to basic things like the internet, uh, wearables. Some of these can be sort of out of reach. And in addition, we're talking about even medications or therapeutics that could be financially out of reach. What do we say around this in the new future, especially in light of the exponential thinking around demonetization. Do we see these things in fact getting cheaper? You know, idea of, you know, 3D bioprinting or creating your own stuff and generating it at home? Um, or is this gonna get more expensive before it gets less? What's your thoughts on access? I'm gonna bring that access question back to the clinical trial topic we've been, uh, we've been hitting on because access to clinical trials is already a huge obstacle for the vast majority in this country. Today, access to a clinical trial means that you live in geographic proximity of someone who happens to be a designated investigator in that study, and you're able to take time off to be able to go spend days at that clinical site, multiple days for multiple visits, that you can travel there for those visits and take that kind of time off. But access today also means serendipity 
that you even found out about that trial in the first place because the doctor you happen to be seeing happened to be an investigator in that research study. And so this theme of access in clinical trials today is a huge issue. It's a huge challenge, and it underscores the lack of representation that we have in most clinical trials where most of the patients participating look like me and I do not look like most of the patients in that disease area. So when we think about decentralization and, and enabling remote participation out of the gate, that should feel like it's a great way to democratize and enhance access. But to your point, we can't leave behind people that don't have access to the technology that's required to participate in those ways. Now, the economics of a clinical trial are such that our ability to provision technology provide internet access are hardly cost barriers for a clinical trialist that's running a, a research study from a pharma company. We can manage provisioning devices for patients. In fact, we've been doing it for years, often despite patients not wanting another device handed to them. In many cases, if we're using an electronic diary in a study, we're handing out these things, even though most patients are saying, can I just use the phone that's already in my purse? Why are you giving me another gadget? And so this comes back to the ability to offer people choice. Some people who have access to technology will want to include that in how they're participating. Others, because they can't access it or simply don't want to merge those two worlds and would rather have a separate device, need to have that choice. But to your point, Natalie, we can't leave patients behind in this future state that we're getting towards of more accessible um, participation to make um, our measurements more representative. Awesome. And the last thing before we close for the day is as you look past this pandemic that we evolved just sort of slowly emerging from, what is sort of your greatest hope for some of the positive disruption that you'd love to see in healthcare moving forward? I think it has to start by people appreciating that simply saying we're not going back to the way it used to be, simply uh, using the phrase that, you know, there'll be a new normal does not necessarily create a new normal. And for most organizations that work in this space, there's a commitment that's to change that's required. We were able to make these accommodations to support a virus. We can make these accommodations stick to support the patients that we've been saying have been at the center of this space for years. Much of that, to do it right, will mean something very simple, Natalie, that people are actually stopping and listening to patients to understand what's most important to them and letting that lead their decisions about what technology, what digital approaches, what measurements we want to include in our studies. And so in the rush for trial continuity, we've done a lot of things and tried to keep our studies running. That doesn't mean those are all the right things, but there's change that's needed and it needs to start with listening. I love it. This has truly been a pleasure. Um, I want to let you know that I've personally thoroughly enjoyed um, your ideas, your thoughts are incredibly thought provoking. Uh, I would love to call you a, a medical futurist. Um, I think the world needs to hear your voice and I think you have a lot more to contribute. I'm sure there's many people who will be listening to this who would love to connect with you. How can people find you? Um, Twitter and LinkedIn is where I, a, a lot of people uh, reach out to me. Um, or, of course, good old-fashioned email, craig at lipset.com. But on Twitter, I'm Craig Lipset, and I'm also easy to find on LinkedIn slash in slash lipset. 
Thanks so much, Natalie, for this opportunity to share with you. I really appreciate your sharing so many different voices and perspectives with your audience. I love it. And again, this was, again, the start of our, uh, another great, courageous conversation. As we were mentioning before, Impetus is a platform that allows for these conversations, these beyond-the-pill discussions, beyond your brand. If you're interested in talking about how else you can start innovating and creating and doing some new things with patients, physicians, and other allied healthcare providers, we'd love to speak to you about that. Again, thank you, Craig, for your time. Wishing you so much um, great success with, uh, with your company, and we wish you a great day ahead. Stay well. Thank you.